Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. How are you doing today? It's October 20th, 2019. I'd just like to say, how are you? How have you been? Um, I really would like to take a minute to explain why there's been such a uh, gap since my last couple of episodes. Um, Essentially, back in May, um, some of you may be familiar with this, but in my home state, we had an onslaught of crazy torrential flooding, Um, flooding that we have not had since the mid-80s, and a lot of people lost homes, Um, some people lost their lives. A lot of people I know lost pets and possessions and cars and, you know, treasured, treasured things in their homes. Um, The water got very close to me. I'll just put it that way. I won't go into crazy detail, but I had to move almost everything out of my studio. The things that I couldn't move, uh, I had to put up on bricks and cinder blocks. I had waterproofing done. I had sandbags put around. It was crazy. Um, I mean, it was a two to three week process for me. Um, I had to shut down the studio and uh, reschedule a bunch of clients. It was a, it was a huge mess and, and it was a really, really bad situation for a lot of people here. Thankfully, the studio did not get flooded. Um, my house did not get flooded. Um, the water was getting really close. I would say if it had rained another day, maybe a day and a half, we we were estimated to get about a foot of water, um, which could have ruined all of my flooring. It could have ruined a lot of electrical stuff or put, maybe electrical stuff. Could have ruined a lot of wiring. Could have ruined a lot of things. Some acoustic panels could have ruined, man, um, a whole lot of stuff. And it could have uh, put me out for a long time. But thankfully, so thankfully, that did not happen. And then, of course... I had to play catch up from those two or three weeks and get back into the swing of things, which the summer is always a crazy time for me. I have a lot of people from out of state come during the summer and one thing leads to another, one month leads to another, and here we are in October. Um, Don't think that I haven't been thinking about the podcast or wanting to make episodes. I have a huge list of of, uh, topics that I've been making and updating. It's probably up to like 50 or 60 now that I have been slowly updating over time all these episodes I want to make. So I do have episodes in the works. I have a handful that I'm starting to outline. Um, The truth is, it is very hard to find time to do this podcast. I know I've said it before, but I just want to reiterate, it's not that I don't want to do it. I do like doing this podcast. It's hard to find spare time to do it. Another reason for that, not only because um, you know, I'm trying to fill up my schedule with clients and, and you know, pay my bills. <laughs> um, but I'm also trying to make a better effort to spend more time with the people in my life. So my family, my wife, um, because like many of you out there, if I had my way, I would probably just be out here in the studio 24-7. Um, I'd probably sleep here and eat here and do everything here. Uh, because I am hopelessly addicted to audio and recording. Um, it's just how it is. And so I, you have to make a, a, an honest effort to say, you know what, I'm going to set boundaries for myself and I'm not going to come out here at two in the morning and record podcast episodes every other week. I'm not going to, you know, stay up super late working on stuff. I'm going to set boundaries and say, nope, 
I'm done at this time. You know, every now and then there can be some exceptions, but try to be much more firm on that. Uh, and, And I think I've been doing a better job in my personal life. Now the question is, how can I work back in the podcast to a more regular schedule and try to balance it back the other way now where, okay, I think I figured out a better balance in my personal life. Now, how can I work back in time for the podcast? One of the ways that you can help me do that is by becoming a Patreon supporter slash patron. What this means is you uh, pledge a certain amount of money and that donation is only given when I produce content. Now, if I were to reach a certain pledge level, um, it would be much easier for me to book a day of studio time to make podcast episodes every month. The truth is, for the last 10 years, the podcast has basically been a function of when I have spare time. And as I do this longer, I seem to have less and less spare time. I'm wanting to parse out my time very carefully, give my clients as much as my uh, as much of my daytime as I can, give my wife as much of the evening as I can, give my family weekends and things like that. Uh, you know, it's the responsible human thing to do. I know it's like all of us introverts and studio people are like, oh no, don't see other people, you know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it, it is what it is, right? I'm just trying to be more honest with myself about that these days. So please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You would be helping me on the way to doing the podcast consistently every single month, something that I could offset the time of hosting the podcast, of making the podcast, of the domain, all of those things. And that would be so, so appreciated. I would also like to say thanks to all of the people who have submitted individual donations or monthly donations on PayPal. It's greatly appreciated. And I'd also like to say thanks to all of you who have sent me emails over the last six months or so. Uh, I've got some emails, you know, being concerned. Are you okay about the flooding? People have heard about it. Um, That's so very nice of you. And yes, I am okay. Um, I also am really good about responding to emails, you should know. So if you send me an email with a question, a comment, or a podcast episode suggestion, then I'm pretty good about responding to the, to those whether or not I have had a podcast in a while. So please continue to do that. You can send me an email anytime, day or night, at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Okay, let's get on to today's episode. In honor of 10 years of Recording Lounge, we've got another top 10 list. Now, today we're talking about the top 10 noob mistakes that people make. Now, don't get me wrong. These are mistakes that anybody can make, whether you've been doing this a long time or you're brand new, but they are total amateur mistakes that you shouldn't make and you should recognize and try not to make them over and over and over again. Now, I would also like to clarify, I have made all of these mistakes and most audio people I know have made all of these mistakes because... To some degree, it's a little bit of a rite of passage. You know, you almost have to go through this to realize that you shouldn't make these mistakes over and over again. But hopefully today I can give you some ideas and some things to think about that maybe are holding you back or maybe you don't realize are part of your problem. And maybe I can prevent you from making those mistakes time and time again or possibly from making them in the first place. So let's get started. Number one. 
being impatient. Now, I don't want to seem like cranky grandpa, like shaking my finger at the young kids these days, but I promise you, audio takes time, okay? A long time. Not only that, but everybody has different ears. Everybody hears things differently. Some people are fast learners. Some people take their time when they learn. Some people have a hard time with focusing and concentrating, especially on really technical things. It kind of, you know, gets to them really quickly and they can't sit down and read a book about, you know, geeky technical stuff. Other people really like doing that. Some people don't like reading books at all. And some people aren't in areas of the world where they have mentors or other friends doing this or internship opportunities or schools or programs of any kind. There are so many factors that contribute to somebody's learning pace in this industry, coupled with the fact that even with the, quote, perfect learning pace, it still takes a lot of time to develop. Okay, I promise you, you are getting better. I know it seems like a slow path at first, but I can't tell you how many people I know who I have been friends with, uh, they have been an intern of mine, I've been sort of a mentor, and they all sort of experience the same thing. Maybe it's after two years, maybe it's after five years, maybe it's after seven years, but at some point they have these moments where they think, I think it's clicking. Like, I think I'm starting to kind of get it all. Um, And it's all like all the pieces are starting to make sense. And you will have those moments multiple times. But I promise you, be patient. It takes time. Collecting gear takes time. Okay, it's really expensive. So, I mean, don't expect to just like buy a bunch of gear. Like people will look at my website and they'll see my gear list and they'll think, oh my gosh, this guy must be rich. He's got all this gear. No. I've been doing this for 15 years and I've been collecting this stuff slowly and I don't sell a bunch of stuff. I really don't. I research gear purchases very carefully and I buy it because I plan to keep it and use it. Um, Learning stuff takes time. Practicing this stuff takes time. Heck, mixing a song takes a long time. Like you can spend all day mixing a song. And when you first start out, I bet it takes you days upon days to get a mix that you like. You know, it takes a long time before you can mix a song in a day. And even then, what I mean is mix song in a day and love it. Not like mix, like work for a day and then be like, oh, well, I guess I'll go to sleep now. Training your ears takes time. It all takes time, okay? Nobody is rushing you but you. It's not a race. It's the sport, right? This isn't like one leg of an Olympic race here, okay? This is the whole art of cross-country running, if you will, right? Uh, So, like, don't look at this as, like, some sort of race. Like, I've got to be the best. I've got to be blah, blah, blah. Um, It takes a long time to achieve mastery in anything. And you really need to think about this as a craft, just like woodworking or cooking, Uh, I mean, it takes a long time to get good at these things. And nobody who really cares about this, I think, will ever feel like 100% satisfied because that's, that's part of it, right? You're always striving to be better. And I always strive to be better. Constantly, I'm still trying to get better at what I do. 
the fact that I have this podcast does not mean that I'm better than you or I have achieved some sort of mythical level of mastery. I'm always trying to learn more. I do think that I am good at what I do and I'm good at explaining what I do and how I do it and why things work why things don't work, and how I think about things. And that's why this podcast is here. I'm here to help you get better. And at the same time, I also need to be very honest and tell you it's slow and it's annoying. It's really annoying that it's slow. Okay. I know some people who have done audio for half as long as I have, and I'm jealous of some of the stuff that they put out. I'm like, man, that guy's really good. How come it took me so long to do that? Okay, that's this is like legitimately me, Kendall, saying I am jealous of people who can do it quickly because it took me a long time. But the longer I do this, I see, you know, there are people who have been doing it for twice as long as I have. And I look at some of their stuff and I think, man, am I? My mixes might sound better than theirs. Like there's no, there's no equal playing field. Like, oh, if you do this for 20 years, you will get this good. Okay. It's, it's all different depending on the person, some stuff, it's all subjective too, you know? So just be patient, realize that you are getting better. It does take time. Make sure you're learning and constantly striving to get better and realize that it's a long, long winding road and That is our first mistake to not make. Number two, ignoring the technical side of things. So some people debate about this, and I've heard some people in music uh, argue things like, oh, learning too much music theory will cloud your creativity. And, you know, Jimi Hendrix couldn't read music. I think that's total BS, okay? Um, Well, I don't know about Jimi Hendrix, I mean, I didn't know the man, but uh, what I mean is learning technical things doesn't cloud your creativity, in my opinion. In fact, the opposite. I think technical things allow you to explore more territories because you know what's going on. And then if you want to break the rules, you can break the rules. But you got to know the rules to break them. You got to know what things do, how they work before you can say, ah, well, now I'm going to abuse this and make it sound awesome. (laughs) So I personally think that ignoring the technical side of audio engineering or producing is a really big mistake. Um, A lot of people get into doing this because they want to make their own music or they want to produce or make beats or write songs or, or, or whatever reason. That's, I mean, that was me. I wanted to record my own music and I just wanted it to sound great. I didn't really care so much about the technical stuff at the beginning, Um, I just wanted my music to sound cool. What drew me to the technical side was asking the, asking myself the question, why does my recording sound so bad? And not really knowing how to explain it. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I, I would ask other people and there were all these terms I didn't know. Uh, and when you don't know anything technical, you're basically just left with, well, I'm, I guess I'm just not good at this or I don't have good ears or whatever. It's sad. And to be honest, it's it's kind of an excuse. Like, you can learn these things. Um, it, it's just ridiculous. Like, uh, the technical side of audio is super deep, and you don't have to go, you know, far out into the ocean of it. You can go 
uh, to a point that you know is logical for you and helps you know a lot of the the basic things and the terms and all these things that are going on. But you don't have to get into like like I'm not asking you to uh, okay prove mathematically why uh, dither works. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not asking you to get that technical. Find a balance, right? Like you can't ignore either side. You can't ignore creativity or your stuff is going to be boring. You can't ignore technicality though, because then you can't understand or explain why something isn't working, why something maybe isn't uh, responding in the mix how you think it might be or why a certain microphone that you swore was going to work is suddenly not working on a certain source. Um, you, you may not be able to understand phase issues or things that are like seriously important in a mix situation. Like you need to understand at least some of the technical to understand what's going on in this job. So don't ignore it. Okay, Don't think that it will cloud your creativity by learning too many things, right? I think you should expand your horizons on both fronts and learn more technical things, learn more creative things, um, watch movies, go to museums, you know, that sort of side of creativity, like the broader side, but also learn about how gear works and learn about the technical terms for decibels, you know, DBFS. I have a whole uh, series of episodes called Commonly Confused Audio Terms um, where we talk about a lot of the terms in audio. Those are great episodes. A lot of people really enjoyed um, because there's a lot of terms in audio and there's a lot of things that get confused. Um, so I highly recommend not looking down on either side. Um, I have a tendency to be a pretty technical kind of engineer. So I also have to feed and nourish the creativity. Uh, I'm a big film buff and I also love art. And so I love, you know, going to films was to watch movies and I love to uh, go to museums. I love researching those things. I love learning about things in general. That's just kind of how I am. I love to learn. Um, and so I make sure to nourish both sides, the technical side, but also creativity and listen to new music and go to concerts and, you know, go travel, all of these things. Like you have to be a well-rounded person to be a good engineer and producer. In my opinion, I think it's, it's a function of fostering all of those parts of your brain and helping your brain as a whole grow so that you can do what you do best. Number three, not understanding money. All right, so this one's a little bit strange, but have you ever noticed how many studios and audio engineers have gotten out of the business in the last couple decades? 90% of the time, it's not because they weren't good or weren't successful or didn't weren't high quality or pro. It's because they had money problems. So why did they have money problems? There's a lot of reasons, but okay, perfect example. Uh, the Magic Shop uh, studio in New York where David Bowie recorded his last album shut down three months after it released. Three months. Okay, many professional studios have closed down in the last 30, you know, 20, 30 years. And the primary reason is because in the nicest way possible, they got spoiled with the money from the music industry in the 80s and 90s. I don't mean that to sound mean, but that's kind of what happened. A lot of these studios used to be able to charge $250, $300 an hour. 
And that's the thing is there were only so many studios for years and years. Remember that home recording or even like project studios weren't much of a thing until the 90s, late 90s is when it kind of started becoming a thing. Um, it, it, you really, before that, had to go to a commercial studio and most people couldn't afford it. That was just the truth. So if you're a studio and you started in the heyday, you know, let's say late 70s, and you're recording Fleetwood Mac and David Bowie and Prince and all this stuff in the 80s, and you're making 300 bucks an hour for two decades, and then the music industry crashes with Napster and the money starts to go away, and as simultaneously the home recording boom is happening and the technology boom is happening, the internet boom is happening, all these things are changing, and these studios still think that they can charge this much. It's just not logical. Okay. So what I'm getting at is so many audio people fail at this, not because of their skill, not because of their passion, not because of their time, but because they don't understand money. They don't understand how to run a business. So I would recommend to you, if you plan on doing this for a while, educate yourself on money. Um, I went to school for accounting uh, not everybody knows that about me, but that's actually what I went to school for. And to show you how geeky I really am, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed going to school for accounting a lot. <laughs> now, I ended up dropping out of school, but I learned a ton about money in school. And even before that, when I started my business, my dad and my brother told me, oh, you need to read these books. They'll they'll help you understand money a little bit better. And I said, okay, you guys have started businesses, so... I, I'm sure you know. And uh, then I, so I read books and I read uh, articles and I read interviews with other businessmen and I read uh, entrepreneur magazines and things like that and tried to learn about running a business and ideas for handling money. And you also just have to learn the basic nuts and bolts of how much should I charge people and what what's price really about? Like, is it is it worth it to charge more and work less or charge less and work more? What's the balance there? It's something that you will constantly work with over time. Another thing is people don't keep good records. They don't understand taxes. They don't understand what things are write-offs and what things are not. There's so many factors that come to money. Please do yourself a favor and educate yourself on those things because after all, whether you're just a freelance audio engineer or a studio, you're running a business. You're trying to support your passion in a business entrepreneur sort of way. And you have to understand how money works. And I've kind of made a commitment to myself to not give too much money advice on this podcast, specifically because it's different for every individual. And I can't really tell you how to work with your money. I'm not your financial advisor, okay? Um, I, I can't tell you what to spend your money on. I can't really tell you how to save or what to invest. And also the tax codes are different for different countries. It starts to get a little bit fishy with that because I have listeners from all over. So I don't want to say this when it's like, oh, no, 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 no. That really only applies to my state or my country or, you know, it just gets fishy with all of that stuff. So, Take it upon yourself to research money, read books about business, read books about money, take some accounting courses, okay? Take some accounting courses at your local community college or university. 
Um, ask people you know about money that are, have been successful for any advice. Um, like I said, just just don't ignore that part. So many people will just sweep it under the rug and be like, oh, I'm not good with money. I hate dealing with money. Wake up. Like this is a business. It doesn't matter if you're not good at it. Get good at it. All right, number four. <laughs> this is the true recording lounge number four. Ignoring the impact of the room. Now, I've ranted about acoustics. I don't even know how many times. I, I need like a swear jar for acoustics rants. <laughs> so where every time I rant about acoustics, I put in money into the jar. I would probably be wealthy by now. Um, but I really feel like this is not only the most common mistake that people make, but it's so amateur. Like it's so amateur to ignore the room and think that it doesn't matter and think, oh, he's just trying to sell. I don't work for any of these companies. I don't make a dime if you buy anything from GIK or Real Traps. I don't make any money on doing this, okay? I'm saying it because it's true. And I can't tell you how many people have emailed me years later and been like, oh my God, you were right about the room. I waited to treat my room and then I finally did and everything got better. Why did I ignore it for so long? Exactly. I ignored it, people. Like me, the one who rants at you about it forever. I ignored it for years. Um, and it wasn't for, you know, a couple years. I was like, man, why am I so bad at this? And thankfully, I had somebody tell me early on, they're like, well, look at a pro studio. You know, it's a it's a professional building, like built by acoustics guys. And I was like, acoustics guys, what? That's a job. I mean, I was a kid. I didn't know. I was you know fifteen or something. And and I was like, what? What's an acoustics guy? Like, what? What do you mean? Why is why is the room this weird shape? And they were like, well, because it doesn't sound good when the walls are parallel. I'm like, why not? And they're like, man, I, I, you know. So I had some people tell me early on, like, yeah, the room matters. And so. I just kind of started getting into it. And over the last 10 years, acoustics has become like a side obsession for me because it's so, so critical and it's so powerful. A lot of people will say things like, oh yeah, I'll put some foam on the walls or I'll, you know, put some blankets or mattresses or whatever. That's not going to cut it. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it really isn't going to cut it. Okay. And it's not going to cut it to just say uh, like, I can't believe the denial of people. So many people are like, oh, this room sounds amazing. It's like, you don't have the ability to hear that. You don't. Like, even me, somebody who has worked in a great room for a long time, I can't go into a control room and just hear it and say, oh, yeah, this room sounds accurate. I, I can't. Because I've been in rooms that measure very well but don't sound very good and vice versa. I've been in rooms that don't measure very well that sound great. So sounding good is not a measure of accuracy. Um, the goal is to get a room that is accurate and sounds good. The imaging is good. The phase relationship is good. Your decay times are even. Your frequency response is good. Your transient response is good. There's so many factors here, right? So that's the goal is to get it to sound good and be accurate. Um, and that's partly personal preference and things like that of sounding good, what that means. But a lot of people will say things like, oh, just learn your room, Okay. But people have taken this sentiment way, way too far. <laughs> like even in an accurate room, you still have to take the time to adjust to the setup. 
Okay, it's not just about frequency response, phase response, impulse response, the decay time in the room, the width of the monitors, how you know how wide they're spaced, the imaging, all that stuff. And you still have to get used to the little anomalies. You don't want to learn an inaccurate room. It's pointless. You will struggle with it forever. And I'm telling you this because I've done the car test and I've done the, you know, oh, I'm going to play it on a boombox and I'm going to listen on headphones and I'm going to listen to my car and I'm going to such a waste of your life and your time. I promise you. Okay. I still listen to mixes in my car, but because it's fun, because I'm curious, I don't have to listen to mixes in the car. 90% of the time I mix on one set of speakers, 90% of the time. Okay. I used to be, I used to listen to tons of different speakers. Okay. Even in episodes earlier, you could probably hear me talking about mixing on NS10s also and mixing on small computer speakers and listening in the car. I barely do that anymore because I trust my room. Um, I just don't need to. Now, I still do listen in the car just out of curiosity. Um, I actually have a pretty decent car system. So in a way it, it's almost not helpful because it's like, it's almost, almost like you need to hear it in a, in a bad car. Um, but I listen to it in my car because I know what my car system sounds like. I've had my car a long time. Um, my point is if you move your speakers a foot closer to you, the entire response changes. If you move to a different part of the room, or if you move your speakers closer together or farther apart, or if you're leaning forward or leaning back, the response is totally different. If you're mixing in one room and then a couple months later you move and now you're in another room, the response is totally different. The goal is to try to keep some amount of consistency in your workflow between studios as you grow and develop and only learn small changes between these rooms and like start off on the right foot, right? Like start off listening to reference mixes and know that what you're hearing is pretty accurate. Like that's actually the way those things sound. Instead, you'll have to learn whatever weird things are in your room. And when you listen to, you know, say an ACDC song, you'll be listening and you're like, man, that kick sounds really strange, but I guess, you know, it's back in black. That's how it sounds. And your brain is going to try to compensate and make things sound like that. I mean, it's, we're going to talk a little bit more about the brain here in a little bit, but um, it, you can't escape it. Okay, the room is seriously powerful. Room acoustics in general is seriously powerful, whether it's for a control room or for a live room. And I mean, it's physics. You've got to treat your room. That doesn't mean with foam and the mattress and blankets and all this. It means the tried and true five-step process that I use, okay? Number one, you have to find the best spot for the speakers and your listening position using a measurement microphone. You can't guess, Okay. There are a lot of good estimations out there that can get pretty close, but you still have to measure it. Okay, You have to measure it. Number two, you have to treat problems with treatment, with quality treatment for frequency response issues, decay issues, uh, impulse response issues, phase issues, high quality absorption products from companies like GIK, Realtrap, so on. You can do a lot of stuff DIY as well, but you have to know what you're doing. Number three, you have to refine then using 
tuned traps or targeted traps or traps built for certain frequency areas specifically rather than just broadband. Okay, so these might be Helmholtz traps or limp mass absorbers, or they might be uh, tuned absorbers or targeted absorbers that are uh, binary surfaces, all kinds of different things that can say, okay, I need a panel that absorbs just a little bit more uh, low end, but not any high end. So maybe you're adding some diffusion, you're just refining, right? Getting things to sound a little bit better. And then step four, refine using slight amounts of EQ and or DSP to smooth out some of those other details. That is truly icing on the cake. That's not supposed to be your, your end-all be-all solution. I have so many people ask me about things like Sonarworks, and I promise you, those products are not, even you ask the creators of those products, they are not designed to replace good room acoustics. They're designed as icing on the cake. And people will put up these terrible responses and it, and ask on forums, how come, how come uh, Sonarworks doesn't make my room sound great? You know, it's like, because it's icing on the cake. The cake itself is a good mix position good speaker position, good treatment. I mean, you could even go as far as to say good room shape. Um, and then all of that, once that is as good as you can make it, use software or uh, analog EQ um, to refine it and just smooth out some of the details that are a little bit tricky to get um, with individual treatments alone. For example, if you're in a relatively small room, you would need a number of feet thick of absorption to treat 40 hertz really well. That's really difficult in a small room. So an EQ pulling out some 40 hertz is a pretty good solution um, because you can legitimately help yourself uh, without spending tons of money and wasting tons of space in your room that might not even work anyway, okay? Sometimes when you're getting down that low, like 20, 30, 40 hertz, those are incredibly hard to treat. Trust me, they really are. Um, and you have to get like specific tuned absorbers. And even those can be pretty large um, to get like Helmholtz traps. Um, those can be pretty big and you have to put them at certain spots in the room. Uh, it's not easy, folks. So don't be afraid of EQ, just know that it is truly icing on the cake and it cannot correct your problems. It's it's essentially fooling your ears, okay? Um, it, that's really all it is, is it's fooling your ears to sound better and more accurate at mix position only. Then step five is learn that, okay? You can't learn the crappy thing. You need to learn the good thing. And from there, then you have a good baseline and you can trust what you're hearing and you won't have to take it to the car a dozen times and you won't have to listen to it on headphones a dozen times and you won't have to listen to it on computer speakers or your iPhone speaker or send it to your friend who has a better studio than you and say, hey, can you take a listen to this and tell me what you think? You don't have to do that, okay? If you can trust your setup, that's it. You can trust your setup. You can trust it while you're recording. You can trust it while you're mixing. You can trust it while you're mastering. You can trust it while you're listening to other people's music, okay? It's, there's no excuse for it. It is absolutely the most common mistake I see people make is they ignore it till the very, very end when they think, my God, I've wasted the last six, seven years ignoring this only to realize how much of an impact. Uh, trust me, as a podcaster and somebody who has an email open to the public that you can email me and send me all of your thoughts, I have heard this sentiment a lot. 
So don't make this mistake. All right, number five, prioritizing the wrong gear. Now, this does tie into the acoustics thing a little bit, but uh, let's ignore that for a second. We've already, you know, I got to put a quarter in the swear jar. Um, (laughs) So uh, people will often spend the majority of their time fawning over the exact wrong gear, at least in my opinion. People will obsess over plugins and digital stuff, software, even mic preamps and analog compressors without even considering things like studio monitors or a good computer or good microphones. All of the things that actually make your studio work and function are mostly the most important things. Like so many people are fawning over these pieces of gear that they'll think will get them even converters. I mean, people will obsess over these things and they'll spend thousands and thousands of dollars on converters and mic preamps and think that that's the secret, that a Neve 1073 is a secret. Uh, And then they're using a cheap, cheap mic with, you know, cheap speakers to, to, to listen to it all. Uh, it's crazy, okay? So to me, um, some of the advice that I got early on, and I still, I will never forget it, is the things at the farthest end of the spectrum uh, of the audio chain are the most important. So what that means is your rooms, okay, at the very far ends, and the source itself, okay, so the instrument that's being played and the player playing it, but then the microphone, Those three on that end and the room they're in, that's the most important on that side. And on the other side of the glass, you have uh, the control room, the monitors, and the computer. The computer is your centerpiece. Like, I can't tell you how many people will complain about computer issues on forums. Meanwhile, uh, you know, their fancy $2,000 mic preamp is sitting there, but they haven't upgraded their computer in like nine years. It's like, man, you do realize that you're going to be working on that thing every day, every single day. It is the centerpiece of the modern studio and it's got to work. It's got to be fast. It's got to have tons of power because if you're going to get frustrated and have lags and skips and disc read errors and uh, I mean, your CPU's maxing out and you can't add any more plugins... What a huge annoyance to work with every day, right? Like, that's so critical. Same thing even with your converters. Like, your converters, I don't think sound quality on converters is uh, as critical as it used to be. I think even cheap converters now sound pretty darn good. Compared to when I started, like, cheap converters sounded terrible. Um, Even just 15 years ago, cheap converters were bad. But now... I mean, you can get a Universal Audio Apollo and like that's a very mid-priced, you know, converter setup and it sounds great and it comes with plugins. Like, I, it's crazy. We did not have things like that 15 years ago. Um, what does matter is that your converters work, right? Like, it's about stuff that's working and same with your monitors. Like, yes, you do need high quality monitors. You do need stuff that, you know, is, is made well and everything, but you also need speakers that can actually produce the frequencies you're trying to hear. Like somebody asked me the other day, is it overkill to get, you know, eight inch or 10 inch monitors in a small room? No, not at all. It's not at all overkill. 
there there's such a myth these days propagated by gear companies. They're like, oh, smaller speakers are better for smaller rooms. And it's like, no, they're not <laughs> at all. Uh, smaller speakers are not better for smaller rooms. Um, I, I don't know where that comes from. That's a complete, that, that is not related at all. There are some speakers that are better for some rooms. Um, sure, in a big room, you probably need big speakers just for the loudness to fill the room. But in a but part of it also is that bigger speakers are capable of producing, generally speaking, a wider frequency response. And if you have little tiny five-inch speakers, the chances of them being strong down at 40, 50, 60 hertz, pretty slim. I've worked in a lot of home studios for people on acoustics consults and I always struggle with people who have monitors smaller than six inch. So people that are using speakers where the largest woofer is six inch or smaller, I struggle with it, okay? I often end up recommend people getting a sub. Not for everything. One exception I found is a lot of the Focal speakers, like the Focal CMS series, um, or like their six inch or six and a half inch uh, shape series, those are impressive. Those put out a lot of low end for those speakers. But even still, that's still a six or six and a half inch speaker. But no, an eight inch speaker is not overkill at all for a small room. In fact, it might help you because you're going to have more low end to work with than you probably need, but it will go deeper. It will be cleaner. You'll have less distortion because it's easier for an eight inch speaker to produce low end than it is for a six inch speaker. It's just the fact of the matter. There's a reason why we use bigger speakers for subwoofers because it's easier for them to produce those frequencies. I, it's just, it's facts. <laughs> I don't know how to say it any other way. So, you know, definitely invest in high quality monitors, invest in your room, okay? Invest in good sources as well. That's another thing people don't think about is if you're a guitar player, don't obsess over the latest and greatest mic system for guitar amps or, you know, the latest cab emulator or all this. Invest in a good guitar and a good amp. Like, start there. And especially when it comes to acoustic instruments, so acoustic drums or piano or acoustic guitar. Like, there is no microphone on the planet. I'm here to spoil it for you. There's no microphone on the planet that can take a crappy acoustic guitar and make it sound great. None. I wish it were the case, but there's nothing out there that can do it, okay? Um, similarly, if you have a really high-definition, like, beautiful-sounding, fancy acoustic guitar, there's not much you can do to make that sound cool and retro and lo-fi, if that's the sound you're going for, other than maybe like rub the strings in dirt and put them back on after a month. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it's so much about the individual sound you're getting. Same thing goes for things like snare drums or, or even any drum really, or cymbals. It's so particular and the sound of different snare drums can be so drastically different between a seven inch maple snare and a six and a half inch black beauty snare or a five inch mahogany snare. I mean, it can be so drastically different and no microphone is going to balance that for you perfectly. You're going to have to do some crazy things to make that work. 
Um, so I've invested a lot of money in good instruments and good amps and things that I keep around here in the studio. I have 10 snare drums to my name and two drum kits and three kick drums and got 30 cymbals. I'm not really even a drummer. And I have these things here because I know that it matters more than some $3,000 mic. It's just true. I have $3,000 mics and I'm telling you it's true. There's no $3,000 microphone that you're even going to put on your snare drum anyway. You know, you're going to put an SM57 or an M80 or, you know, maybe you're going to tape a couple mics together or whatever. They're still cheap dynamic mics. You got to make sure the source sounds good. You got to learn how to tune drums. You got to learn what drum heads are good for recording and what drum heads aren't. You got to mess with guitar cabinets and guitar speakers and bass DIs and bass amps. You got to mess with all of this stuff because that's the stuff you're actually recording. And if you don't understand those sort of like tone hurdles and tone struggles that musicians go through, how are you supposed to get their sound? How are you supposed to achieve what they're looking for if you can't even recognize that in the room, it's not producing what you're looking for, right? You have to produce the sound first and then you capture it. I promise you, engineering is much more fun when you realize this is a holistic process. It's from start to finish. Every single part matters, but the things that matter the most are the actual things you're recording. Go figure, right? Like if your snare drum is out of tune and sounds like crap, there's no mic on the planet or plug-in that's going to fix that. I mean, sure, you could replace the snare, but come on, like have some dignity in, in, in the sounds, like get the sounds in the room. It just makes such a huge difference. Uh, and again, don't ignore the room. Don't ignore your control room or your live room. Um, but man, it just don't worry so much about mic pre's and compressors and plugins and EQs and software and all this stuff. That stuff will come. Try to focus on getting the best sounds you can with a great handful of microphones, great sources, great rooms, and just start there. From there, you can start asking yourself, okay, what do I really need? Okay, maybe I do need a couple of analog compressors. Maybe that would speed up my workflow. Maybe it would help things go along faster. Maybe I need some analog EQs. I tend to make the same moves on maybe toms every time or, um, or on snare. Maybe I, I could really use an analog EQ because I'm going to do that every time anyway. You know, there are questions you can ask yourself, right? Make, do audits of your, of your productions and ask yourself these questions because you can really learn a lot of things and you can see, man, I'm spending a ton of money on stuff that I just don't really need to be buying. People will so often go for quantity over quality because they want to have a studio. They want to have a lot of gear. They want to fill up the rack spaces. It looks cool, but I promise you, it's a huge waste of time, money, and space if you don't really need it. It would be better for you to have four solid channels with, you know, 10 great microphones than 24 channels of preamps and 24 mediocre mics. It's just true. If you need to go somewhere else to record drums, then go do it. But like, it'd be better for you to have four channels available to you that are awesome 
that have, and you have a big microphone selection and a lot of different sources, then, oh, look, I bought tons and tons of preamps and I bought tons and tons of microphones and none of them are really that good, but look, I've got a bunch of, I've got a bunch of quantity and now I can record drums. It's like, okay. Uh, (laughs) You know, so don't think about this, you know, in terms of me trying to say, oh, you have to buy this, you can't buy this, but just think about it a little bit more. Think about the priorities, think about what matters and what's going to make the biggest difference in your sound. And it's generally going to be your rooms, your sources, your players, and your microphones. And you have to hear it all through your monitors. So just think about it. Number six, using too much processing. Now, this is kind of like a bell curve that I have found. So when you first start out, a lot of people, because they don't know anything really about audio, they don't even know what processing to use. So they like might add a little bit of EQ and they might add a little bit of compression or whatever. And then what happens is over time, that bell curve starts going up and they start learning more about stuff. And then they just go into like overdrive mode and they start adding compression and distortion and saturation and delays and reverbs and EQs and all this stuff on everything. And they just pile up their sessions with five or six or seven or eight plugins on every track. And it's crazy. Um, Now, sure, sometimes that is what you need, but most of the time it's not. What people will do is they'll ask themselves, oh, I need to put some EQ or compression on that or whatever, when they probably should be asking themselves, okay, how could I have recorded this better? Um, How could I have mic'd this up better? Or maybe I should have used a different position, mic position, or maybe uh, I needed to use a different symbol or, you know, asking yourself questions about the recording don't ignore that you're working on a recording, right? Like people often think, oh, I'm working on a mix. And it's like, well, it starts as a recording. Like try to get the best recording you can first. Now, if you're just mixing, obviously you don't always have the luxury of like re-recording stuff. But even in that case, I've seen it so many times, plug-in after plug-in after plug-in, loads of EQ, loads of saturation, I mean, don't get me wrong. I use all of those things, but the key is I use it with purpose. I don't just add stuff because I think, oh, and this is going to make it better and that's going to make it better. And you know, it's like, it's like cooking with all your favorite ingredients combined. I've used that analogy before. Like, yeah, I like curry. Don't get me wrong. And I like cinnamon and I also like ramen noodles and I like Rice Krispies, but all together in one dish sounds kind of like a nightmare. Um, so you can't just add your favorite stuff or this is going to be cool. This is going to be like, you have to do it with purpose. Okay. As you do this longer, I think you find you're asking yourself, what can I do to enhance this sound and make it fit in the production without changing it too much? Uh, and not removing the intent of the sound. I find that over time, my clients and myself are getting pickier about the raw sounds. And when a client gets a guitar tone, that's the tone they want. They don't want me to change it later. They're like, no, I like that tone. Don't change it. So you have to figure out a way to make that tone work 
and keep the spirit of that tone there while still molding it and shaping it to work in your mix. Um, and that's a challenge, okay? So many people, they'll get stuck working in solo and they'll start processing their kick drum and they'll spend, you know, what I call kick drum land. They'll get lost in kick drum land and they'll spend 20 minutes working on their kick. And it's pointless, okay? It's pointless. It only really matters how it works in context. So one of my solutions to this is uh, what I call mixing big to small. Some people will call this top-down mixing, uh, which is a, a pretty good way to describe it. Basically, what it means is you start working from the big things and you work your way down to the details. So in a mix, you'd be talking about your master bus. Maybe you'll start with a little bit of EQ and compression on the master bus, and then you start working your way down okay, to maybe the drum bus. Maybe you add a little bit EQ and compression, maybe a little saturation, maybe a little reverb, I don't know, on your drum bus, and then you slowly, gradually work your way down to the details. You think you do this because at the end of the day, you're making a mix. Uh, now, sure, it can be useful to solo up individual instruments, for sure, no doubt about it, especially if you're trying to hunt for problems or like pull out a ring on a snare or adjust some harshness on a vocal. Of course, go ahead and solo it up. But always remember that you're making a, a total production here. You're not just combining a great kick sound and a great snare sound. And, you know, sure, some guys that have been doing this a long time um, will solo up stuff all day long and they'll work on it and make it sound great. And they can make that happen. But in general, most people that I know that are really impressive mixers, they try to constantly remember that I'm listening to a whole mix. Like the whole thing has to sound good. It has to sound good in context. The drums as a whole have to sound like drum kit, you know, like one big piece, not just snare, like, like disembodied snare sound, disembodied kick sound disembodied, awkward crash cymbals on the left and right. You know, it, it needs to sound like a drum sound. Um, and then altogether, your mix needs to sound like one focused production where the guitars make sense with the keyboard and the, and the keyboard makes sense with the drums and the drums make sense with the bass and the vocal makes sense with all of it. You know, it's one big thing. So don't get caught up in using too much processing don't get caught up in kick drum land where you're just sitting there soloing up a kick drum for 30 minutes. Try to focus on the big picture. Try to realize that part of your job is not doing stuff to things and knowing when to process and when to leave stuff alone. All right, number seven is using your eyes too much. So this might seem a little bit contrary to the last one, but they're related. Um, a lot of people have the problem of processing too much or too little because they're using their eyes too much. They're using their eyes to place microphones. They're using their eyes to adjust gain levels. They're using their eyes to adjust compression gain reduction levels. They're using their eyes on an EQ and saying, ooh, that's too much or that's not enough. Okay, it's pointless, okay? we're not in the business of looking at meters, okay? We're in the business of making great sounds. Um, gain reduction amounts, EQ amounts, send levels, what algorithm or plugin you're using for a delay, all of that is pointless. All that matters is how it sounds. 
So train yourself to listen to the results of what you're hearing. You might think, oh, when I do a dB of EQ, I can't hear it. It's like, you'll be able to hear it eventually. Just if you have a decent monitoring setup, you'll be able to hear that change. Um, get in the habit of comparing things bypassed and processed and listening to the difference. It doesn't matter if you're EQing or compressing by a dB or 10 dB. What ultimately matters is that it sounds great and it sounds great in context, right? Um, so like I said, it is a little bit contrary to the last one I said because, yeah, sometimes you do need to do extreme processing, but the key is knowing when to do it and when to leave it alone. That's like I said, right? Um, so give yourself some time. Really try to help yourself learn more from your ears. And when you're listening to music, uh, don't pull it up on a, on a meter. Uh, you know, listen to it and really like close your eyes and listen to it. When you're listening to your mix for the first time, before you start just adding a bunch of, I mean, some people, when they first hit play, they immediately start adding EQs and compressors and stuff. Try to just listen to it for a minute. Maybe adjust some levels here and there, right? Like things that you're hearing. That sounds too loud. That sounds too loud, okay? Um, luckily, when it comes to levels, most people trust their ears. They think, oh, that's too loud. But when it comes to EQ or when it comes to compression, it's really, really easy to look at that meter and say, mm, I'm doing a lot of compression. I might back that off a little bit. It's really easy to look at that EQ and say, no, that doesn't look right. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Why am I, why am I boosting 400 on a kick? That's not what you're supposed to do, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. You might sit there and say, man, I... I shouldn't be doing this. Did I mess up? Did I record this weird? Or am I hearing this weird? You know, you'll second guess yourself. So don't worry about what it looks like. Just listen. Trust your ears. Develop your ears. Have faith in your ears. And make sure you can trust your monitoring, of course. And you can actually feel good about your decisions. <laughs> if you're relying on your eyes too much, it might be because you haven't allowed your ears to learn enough, right? Like you're you're actually holding back your progress by using your eyes too much and saying, ooh, I want this type of sound. And you pull up a plug-in and it looks like that old SSL console, so it's got to sound like it, right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it, it really is a powerful thing, which leads us right into our next point. So... Number eight is the expectation bias. This is a really, really powerful feature of the human brain. And, and it's kind of related to these last couple of points that I've been making. But it's really important. The expectation bias is basically that when you expect a certain result, you get it. So I'm going to read a little bit of an excerpt from an article written by the author David McRaney. Um, he's written a great book called You Are Not So Smart. Uh, he's written some other things, but um, he, in this article, he talks a little bit about uh, the expectation bias. So here we go. In 2001, Frederick Brochet conducted two experiments at the University of Bordeaux. In one experiment, he got 54 analogy, which is the study of wine tasting and winemaking, undergrads 
together and had them taste one glass of red wine and one glass of white wine. He had them describe each wine in as much detail as their expertise would allow. What he didn't tell them was both were the same wine. He just dyed one white and one red. In the other experiment, he asked the experts to rate two different bottles of red wine. One was very expensive and one was very cheap. Again, he tricked them. This time, he had put cheap wine in both bottles. So what are the results? The tasters in the first experiment, the one with the dyed wine, described the sorts of berries and grapes and tannins they could detect in the red wine as if it really was red. Every single one, all 54, could not tell it was white. In the second experiment, the one with the switch labels, uh, you know, expensive wine, cheap wine, um, the subjects went on and on about the cheap wine and the expensive wine. They called it complex and rounded. They called the same wine in the cheap bottle weak and flat, even though it was the same wine. Another experiment at Caltech pitted five bottles of wine against each other. They ranged in price from $5 a bottle to $90 a bottle. Similarly, the experimenters put cheap wine in the expensive bottles, but this time they put the tasters in a brain scanner. So the people tasting the wine were you know, hooked up. While tasting the wine, the same parts of the brain would light up in the machine every time. But with the wine that the tasters thought was expensive, one particular region of the brain became more active. Another study had tasters rate cheese eaten with two different wines. One, they were told, was from California, the other from North Dakota. The same wine was in both bottles. The tasters rated the cheese they ate with the California wine as being better, and they ate more of it. So is the fancy world of wine tasting just all pretentious bunk? Not exactly. The wine tasters in the experiments above were being influenced by the nasty beast of expectation. A wine expert's objectivity and powers of taste under normal circumstances might be amazing. But Brochet's manipulations of the environment misled his subjects enough to dampen their acumen. An expert's own expectation can act like kryptonite on their superpowers. Expectation, as it turns out, is just as important as raw sensation. The buildup to an experience can completely change how you interpret the information reaching your brain from your otherwise objective senses. In psychology, true objectivity is pretty much considered to be impossible. Memories, emotions, conditioning, and all sorts of other mental flotsam taint every new experience you gain. In addition to this, uh, your expectations powerfully influence the final vote in your head over what you believe to be reality. So when tasting a wine or watching a movie or going on a date or listening to a new stereo through $300 cables... Some of what you experience comes from within, and some comes from without. Expensive wine is like anything else that is expensive. The expectation it will taste better actually makes it taste better. So this is a great story, uh, and uh, I, I'm so glad that this can play into this conversation because it's so critical when, when audio gear, where audio gear is concerned. This isn't really a noob mistake, I should say. Experts make this mistake constantly. 
The true mistake is not recognizing that this exists and that it happens to us all the time in audio. When we see that Neve logo or Neumann badge on a microphone, we just assume it's going to sound better than the other thing. We're probably assuming it's going to sound good in the first place. How many of you have adjusted a compressor or an EQ uh, only to realize that it's in bypass? Because your brain is expecting it to sound better, it will sound better to you. Your brain will tell you, this is better. The truth is, there are expensive pieces of gear that sound like crap. There are cheap pieces of gear that sound amazing, and vice versa. It's all subjective, and you should just use the stuff that you like, that helps you get the sounds you want quickly, efficiently, that you enjoy using. This is coming from someone who has a lot of gear. Like, I've got a lot of gear, and some of my favorite pieces of gear are very modestly priced, but I use them a lot, and they get the job done. They're durable. They're reliable, and I, I love using them. There are some pieces of gear that are really expensive that I think sound good, but I don't use them as often as I should because maybe I'm a little bit worried about uh, getting it damaged or maybe, you know, oh, it's a little bit, you know, too nice for this or whatever, or, you know, I don't want to put it in front of that guitar amp or uh, I've got another mic that'll work just fine. You know what I mean? Like there, there are parts of my brain that will say those things and it's, it's ridiculous, but it's the nature of the beast, okay? We can't escape it. It's what our brain says. We say, oh, no, this is going to sound better because it's expensive. I've been down the path of buying silver cables. I've got an $800 silver cable hanging on the wall over there. And it's because, factually speaking, silver is a better conductor than copper. I had to know. I went down the path. I bought the cable. I compared it to a regular copper cable. And I just couldn't hear a difference. And when you're debating something so minuscule, it just doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I mean, if it's something that you have to A, B 20 times to even tell if there's a difference, it doesn't matter. You move your head a foot to the left in your room and it's going to sound totally different than it did before. Now, of course, you can't really A-B that in real time, but I can prove with tests, with acoustics tests, that it does sound totally different a foot over there. So it's ridiculous. Um, don't waste your time obsessing over those things and don't worry about you know, what name it's got on it or whatever. Realize, however, that when you see that fancy piece of gear, when you see that new plugin, when you see a plugin that looks like a vintage piece of gear, your brain is going to expect it to sound better. So when you're auditioning that plugin and you say, wow, that looks like a really awesome distressor plugin or a really great Neve clone, your brain is going to actually make it sound better to you than what you have if you expect it to sound better. If you go into these things objectively, like I did with my silver cable, and I said, I have no idea if this is going to sound better. People think it's a crock. Other people think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. I'm just not going to go in with any expectations at all. And I'm going to really listen to it. I'm going to blind test it. And I'm going to say, I don't know which one is which. 
so let's just see which one sounds better. And I could not consistently pick out one that sounded better. They both sounded fine to me. I, I, they didn't sound really any different at all. You know, it's kind of a waste of money. <laughs> um, same type thing with certain microphones. I have some microphones that cost three, $4,000. And I have some microphones that beat them in shootouts that cost half of that or half of that. And you can't beat yourself up about it. Trust your ears. If a client is singing into a microphone and they say, man, I love how this sounds and it's the cheapest mic you own, who cares? Don't expect your expensive mic to win. Expect to get a good result from any of them and that one of them could be amazing and the singer might like them. Um, I also try not to tell singers how much microphones cost because when they realize that that microphone on the end is $3,000, they're going to think it sounds the best. They just will. Um, but if you tell them, uh, you know, these microphones range in price, um, I don't care which one we use. I don't care which one, you know, looks the fanciest. I want the one that you think sounds the best and that we agree is, you know, just killing it on your vocal. And that's great because then you're telling yourself, I'm not expecting that one to work. Um, now, I do find that over time, the longer you do this, I find it's easier in some ways to avoid this bias because you realize how subjective it all is and how on a Monday, your U67 sounds amazing and on Tuesday, it sounds like crap on whatever you put it on. You know what I mean? It's, it just depends on your day, on the source, on your mood, on where it's placed in the room. It, there's so many factors. You just have to go with your gut when you hear it. Who cares how much it costs? You just have to say, that sounds good to me. All right, number nine. This one is really important as well. Uh, and a lot of people ignore it. Not learning from reputable sources. Now, I don't bring this up to toot my own horn, I promise. I'm bringing this up because I have made this mistake and I made this mistake for a long time. When I first started recording music on my own, like I said, the internet was pretty new and it's not what it was today. Um, YouTube didn't exist. There were only a couple of audio forums. The real name of the game at that time was books. Like there were some pretty popular books around, you know, Recording Engineer's Handbook. And some of those were kind of hot at the time. Um, so I bought a bunch of books and a lot of those books had interviews with people. And so I read all these interviews and I said, oh man, that's the microphones that people use. Oh, they use this, they use that. And that's the gear to use. And that's what pros use. Um, unfortunately, I came to learn, oh, wait a minute. I don't even like the records that these people are making. <laughs> or, oh, this random person on the forum doesn't actually know what they're talking about. And they don't even have a website with recordings on it. And who are they to tell me this is a good mic, that's a bad mic? I'm sure we've all experienced it at some point or another, getting bad advice from somebody on a forum or seeing people bicker on a forum or comment section. It's really important to watch what sources you're using for knowledge, okay? Anybody in the world can start a YouTube channel. Anybody can start a blog. Anybody can start a website. Okay. So make sure that you spend a little bit of time and do some research into 
the channels that you're watching on YouTube, to the books that you're reading. And not only that, but if you're watching an interview with somebody, that you even like the sound of their records to begin with. Because, uh, for example, Pensado's Place. I think it's a great YouTube channel. Uh, Dave Pensado is a pro. He's worked on more records than I could even name. And he interviews a lot of industry pros. But there are a lot of people he has on his show, I don't like the sound of their records. That doesn't mean I can't listen to their interview and enjoy it. But what it does mean is if they say, this is the secret to getting a good vocal sound, and I don't like the way that their vocal sound sounds, I might want to take that with a grain of salt. Okay? So... We do have so many more ways to learn these days, and that, that's great, but it can make it really more daunting. Um, it's super easy to get misled. Everybody thinks they're an expert, you know, that whole thing. Some people can even speak about it really eloquently, which makes it sound like they know what they're talking about, even if they're just a good speaker or a good writer. Uh, it's really hard to know on a forum or on online or whatever, or on, even on a podcast like this. Um, maybe people are totally trolling you like on a YouTube comment or on a forum or something like you really can't know, you know, it's tough. I get it. It's so easy to get confused by all of that stuff. Investigate the source before taking too much knowledge from it. I, I hope that I have proven myself, uh, worthy of your time and of listening to, and hopefully my advice has helped you over the years. If you're still listening to the Recording Lounge podcast and I have not helped you in the last 10 years, I'm so sorry, but also, why are you still listening to me? <laughs> if you're still listening to me after 10 years of this podcast and you're like, man, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm like, why? <laughs> if you don't like my advice, if it hasn't helped you, then don't take my advice. Um, all of this being said, don't tr don't limit yourself to just one stream of education. Don't let my podcast be the only thing you listen to. Read books, cruise the forums, join Facebook groups, talk to other audio engineers that you know personally. I'm sure we already, you know, we do geek out about it and stuff, but like keep doing that. Um, and of course, do it yourself as much as possible. Okay, like you have to learn through as many avenues as you can. Um, just take that little bit of extra time when you're reading something to consider uh, what's the source of this? Did this come from, are they trying to sell me something or uh, is this from just some random kid on YouTube? Is this advice really good? Um, because especially when you first start out, you're just so hungry for knowledge and you're kind of like, I want everything that I can get. I want it all. But you can kind of be feeding yourself some misinformation or some confusion that's just unnecessary. You know, I would stick to things that are reliable, that are recommended. If you need some good recommendations, I do have some stuff on my Recording Lounge website that you can go check out in the resource hub. Uh, there's a tab that says resources, and I have links to a bunch of stuff on there that I think are helpful. Um, so yeah, definitely go check that out, but just make sure you don't just accept everything that's said, including me as gospel truth, and you don't investigate it further for yourself. Number 10 is not committing to things. So this can manifest itself in all parts of the recording process. And I think the best way for me to describe why this is such a big mistake 
is to take you through each step of the process and explain how this can hurt you. So let's go back as early as pre-production and even songwriting or you know early production stages before you've even recorded anything. So if you are hearing some problems in the music and you're saying, eh, you know, that verse, maybe it's a little long or, you know, we didn't really work on a bridge, but eh, I'm not sure. Uh, it'll be fine. We'll figure that out in the moment when we get in the studio. Um, those types of decisions, I can promise you, are dangerous. Uh, the power of deciding those things early and walking into the studio prepared is so real and so important. I have a client that we've worked on a handful of songs together and a couple of them they really just weren't happy with in the end and it concerned me because you know as a producer I'm I'm wanting them to be happy with their product and there's one or two that they didn't even release. And I kind of had a heart to heart with them. I was like, listen, like I want to help you get what you want. And basically they were like, man, it's not really you. It's, we just don't really like the song anymore. Like we're kind of just annoyed by the song, the, the lyrics, you know, all of that stuff. Like we should have demoed this song before we came to the studio. And it's interesting because their lead singer told me, Every song that we have released and loved and kept, we've made a demo for. The two that we did not do that for, the two that we didn't make demos for, we didn't like in the end. So that's a really powerful example of how figuring out a lot of those decisions early in the process when you're just planning out what am I about to record are so important because it can totally kill the vibe later when you're in the studio and you're just like, uh... I don't know what to do. What do we do for a bridge? What do we do for a verse? Should we put another chorus in here? And you can just be sitting around debating stuff that's totally subjective anyway and basically just like halt your session. That's no good. I think it speaks to the power of the demo and how important it really is to figuring out a as much of the musical stuff as you can and committing to it and saying, that's the lyric, that's the verse. That's the bridge that we're going to do. This is how we're going to start the song. This is how we're going to end the song. Um, and still be open to those things changing in the end, but don't just not have a plan. Like, commit to something and then be open to modifying it as it goes along. Now, let's talk about how this mistake can manifest itself when you're actually recording. Say, for example, you record drums and you're listening through to the mics and you're thinking, you know, okay, snare is going to need a little bit of top end or whatever. And, you know, maybe uh, the hi-hat needs a little bit of this, or maybe I should use a different kick mic or the inside mic sounds pretty good. The outside mic sounds pretty good. You know, you're, you're just kind of accepting things. And what you de decide later is, uh, yeah, I'll just, you know, I'll just adjust it and mix it later. And those drums will sound good later. Let's say you're recording electric guitar and you put up three different mics on the cabinet and you listen to all of them and each one sounds good. They sound okay together, but you're like, ah, oh, there's probably some phase issues, whatever, but I'll, I'll work that out in the mix. Um, th repeat this process now for every instrument in your production. And what you have is, you know, a whole song full of tracks that don't actually sound that great together. You've kind of just made all of these decisions to do later or you're passing them off to somebody else which is even worse 
um, because then someone else is going to have to deal with it and they might not know what you wanted in the first place. Another thing is maybe you're saying, oh, I don't really want to add EQ and compression or, you know, I can always do those things later, so I'll just do them later. What you're getting into with all of these types of decisions is uh, collecting a bunch of tracks that you're really not even happy with the sound of that won't sound good until they're mixed. And I can tell you that's not a good place to be, especially when working with clients, because you want it to sound great. For the entire process, you want them to be loving it from minute one to the time when it's finished. So I highly recommend you start not letting yourself get nervous or whatever, and you commit to things early. Uh, you commit to guitar tones. If you add some EQ on a mic or if you say, you know what, I really just like the sound of this one mic, I'm just going to go with it. I don't need to put up five mics just in case. I'm going to I'm going to say I like this sound. We're happy with it. This is the sound we want. Let's record it. Same thing with compression on vocals. Some people are afraid to record compression with vocals because they're afraid they're going to overdo it. Sure, in some situations you will overdo it. And in some situations I would understand why if you have a really dynamic vocalist or something and you're like, man, I, I just don't have the right compressor or setup to, to really tackle this gracefully and instead it would just end up being too much or too little, um, that's a pretty good decision as well. But for the most part, I see so many people afraid to commit to things. They'll put up, you know, I'll, I'll get mixes from people who have recorded at home studios and they'll be, you know, three mics on an acoustic guitar and none of them really sound that good. It's like, man, it would have been better if you just took the time to put one mic up and really make sure that it sounded great rather than just putting three mics up and rolling the dice. You know what I mean? And a lot of times in the mix, that's what I end up doing is I just listen for the mic that sounds the best and go with that because combining them might be a nightmare with phase issues and all of this stuff. Another way that this can manifest while recording and editing is not editing as you go. Um, it's a huge mistake to do this for a couple of reasons. First, when you're recording drums, for example, and then you record bass and guitars, if you record drums and don't edit them, the bass player will be playing to incorrect drums. And then the guitar player will be playing to incorrect drums bass and drums. And then the keyboard player will be playing to incorrect bass guitar and drums. And then the singer will be singing to incorrect rhythm section. You, you see my point here. Everything is going to be wrong and you can't just edit it all at the end and expect it to work. It's going to take you way longer and it'll be annoying to do it all at once. And I promise you it will sound better to do it as you go, because if you record drums and then you edit them, you're now playing bass to correct drums, which means likely the bass will need way less editing because they're playing to the actual correct drums. If you then edit the bass and make sure it's tightened up with the drums and then record guitar, they are recording to the most correct version of the song at this point, right? That's the goal here is you want everybody to be tracking to the best sounding version they've ever heard. 
That's the goal. So commit to your sounds while recording and then commit to the edits. Now, you don't necessarily have to bounce, you know, your edits and like destroy your original files. You know, you should probably keep the originals just in case, but make the edits. Don't just say, oh, I'm going to do that later or whatever, because then everybody will be recording to the wrong thing, basically. Um, this can also manifest itself when it comes to vocals. When you record vocals, I find it ideal to edit and tune the vocal before you record backing vocals. Now, in a lot of situations, I don't really have the time to do that because I take a lot of time to do that. And sometimes if a band is in the studio for two days or three days or whatever, I might not have that luxury depending on how much we have to get done. But it is ideal. So regardless, I still will do a quick rough edit and remove any vocal lines that are going to be problematic. And I'll put auto-tune on it, at least so they're recording to something that is a little bit more correct. In the mix process, this can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Now, one of the first ones that you'll find is uh, when people have not committed to decisions in the recording process or the editing process or in the tracking, like pre-production pro process, you'll get a really messy session with lots of decisions that have not been made. And you're sitting there as the mixer saying like, I don't know what to do with this stuff. I don't know what they're wanting. And I can tell you that's such a nightmare to work with in a mix situation. It's so much more enjoyable to get tracks that have been recorded and things have been committed um, that do kind of tie your hands a little bit because you know, well, this is what they want. This is the sound they have committed to. And then you, then your hands are tied a little bit, but you have to think of creative ways to get what you need to get out of what they have given you, which is ultimately the whole job. You know what I mean? Like if they give you three mics on snare drum and four mics on a kick drum and a sample, and they give you five mics on a guitar amp, how are you supposed to know what they were hearing in their heads? Did they, were they hearing anything specific or at all, or did they just have a bunch of gear and they didn't really commit? I mean, it's a really tricky situation. Another thing that we've talked about is mixing for loudness, right? A lot of people will assume that mastering is all about loudness and all this, and, and that's an erroneous assumption, okay? Loud masters come from loud mixes, and you have to handle some of that yourself. Now, I wouldn't recommend you try to handle all of it yourself, but you have to keep your mix in check and commit to certain things. And, you know, maybe that doesn't mean putting a master limiter on your master bus. I don't recommend doing that. But it might mean adding some saturation on your drum bus or on your vocal bus or maybe a little bit of limiting here and there on individual channels to tame some transients so that you don't just give the mastering engineer this crazy, dynamic, uncontrollable thing that they then have to try to tackle in one single process. Um, it's much more effective to tackle individual instruments and say, okay, I've, I've tamed a little bit of the, you know, sharp transient on the snare, tamed a little bit of that on the vocal, tamed a little bit of that on my acoustic guitar. Um, and, and you're working towards the common goal of, all right, this mix is still dynamic. It still sounds good, but it's more controlled than if I just left that, you know, 
as is. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, make sure to check out my podcast on Mixing for Loudness and watch my videos on YouTube about Mixing for Loudness. Now, there's not a whole lot of things that can be delayed uh, about the mastering process other than perhaps delaying the decision of who's going to master it. Some people will just wait until the very end and they haven't thought about who's going to master it at all. And so they just pick someone and it's like, come on, this is important. Like you can't just pick a random person and say, oh, they'll do fine. Not only that, but, you know, mastering is mostly about having a third person who is unbiased, who has never heard your material, cap it off with the icing on the cake. That's really kind of the majority of what mastering is about. It's not about loudness or, you know, evening things out as much as it is sending your mix to somebody who's never heard it, who is to totally unbiased, and immediately someone that you trust can say it's a little bit bright or it's a little bit fat on the low end or needs to be a little bit louder. That's the real value of mastering. And... For musicians and artists to just delay that decision to the very end is is not a good idea, I don't think. Uh, and producers are guilty of it too. They'll, they'll delay that decision and say, oh, well, you know, I've got a guy, he's fine, without really thinking about who's going to be the best for this scenario. Um, so my point in bringing up this overall is when you delay decisions, you create more work for yourself later. You have to live with a mix or a production at any any given stage that is not really what you want yet. You're always like, oh, well, it'll be that way later or, oh, we'll get that tone later or, you know, oh, I'll work. I'll reamp those guitars later. That's not what place where you want to be. You want your production to be sounding as good as it possibly can at every single stage. Not only that. But it can get you into bad habits about not being bold, about not being proud and confident of the work you're doing, and instead just kind of take like the scaredy cat way out of engineering everything and of mixing everything, and instead you're afraid to actually make any bold decisions. This kind of leads right into my final point, which if I had to have a number 11 in this list, that's what it would be, is... Being afraid, not just of committing to things, but just being afraid. That's a very common mistake I see, especially in new engineers or young engineers. They're afraid to do stuff. They're afraid to commit to a decision. They're afraid about what they should charge their clients. They're afraid of the whole process. They're afraid maybe I'm not good enough. I wanted to close this episode with this one because... I know so much of audio can be daunting. I know it can be time consuming. I know you feel like you're not good enough or not getting better or you're getting better, but it's, but it's slow or you're too young or you're too old or maybe you're strange or weird or eccentric or shy. Um, maybe you're just new at this and you don't really know what you are or where to start. The biggest mistake I think you can make in all of this is fearing it and being afraid of it and thinking it's too hard or you're not going to do it or I can't learn this way or I can't learn that way. There's no reason to be afraid. This is supposed to be like your passion, right? That's a great thing. I had a friend recently tell me um, that what I do is living the dream. He said those words, like, that's the dream, man. And 
I haven't really thought about it in a while, to be honest. And it was incredibly refreshing to hear um, from like the outside, you know. I forget about it because I do it so much and I've been doing it for so long. But there was a time when all I wanted to do with everything in my being was record, mix, and produce music full time. That was the dream. And guess what? Here I am doing it. And I've been doing it for over a decade. Yes, there have been times of fear and I've had to make hard choices. When I was a, when I dropped out of school to go full time with audio, that was really scary. When I was planning out my studio build and realized I had no idea where I was going to come up with this kind of money. Very scary. This last May, when flooding was ravaging my state, and I was worried I might lose my house, my studio, everything. That was terrifying. But there's a difference in being afraid of the path and being afraid of an obstacle in the path. There's always going to be obstacles in the path. There will always be roadblocks. But if you want to continue on, and you do, right? You, you want to continue on the path. You have to learn to find your way around the obstacles or to work through them or to turn them into something else and to not to realize that you don't fear the destination and really you don't fear the obstacle you just realize that this is a problem and I have to figure out a solution for it because after all for many of us the destination we don't fear because destination is the dream. Don't be afraid to do this. Don't be afraid to pursue what you want to do to make you happy to live the dream that you may have. It is terrifying in certain moments. Don't, don't get me wrong. But you don't have to live afraid of it, right? If you go to a scary movie, you're not necessarily terrified every single moment of the movie. There are scary moments, but you're not terrified just existing. But some people will go through their careers and be terrified. Terrified of failing, of not being as good as somebody else, of not winning a Grammy someday. That's not the path. The path is not awards, at least not for me. The path is the dream. And the dream is doing audio, doing what I love as a job that so many people across the world would be jealous of. I mean, that, that's a, that it's a dream for a lot of people to do what they love full time. I'm not a rich man. I don't have Grammy Awards hanging on my wall or golden records, but I get to do what I love to do. And that's the dream. As always, thanks for listening to this episode of the Recording Lounge Podcast. Make sure you check out recordingloungepodcast.com for all Recording Lounge related things. Um, also, make sure if you have any questions whatsoever, you send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. I hope you consider supporting me on Patreon or with a PayPal donation. 
Your support means a lot to me to keep doing this podcast and to keep doing it more consistently. So thanks to all of you out there. I've got more episodes on my to-do list. I will try to get them out as soon as I can. Uh, Thanks to all of my Patreon supporters, and I will talk to you guys next time.